Well, I um, want to talk about two things this morning. Uh, I, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the purpose of the Bible. You know, it seems like a pretty trivial or easy question, but really when you think about it, why did God create the Bible and what's the purpose behind that? And then the second question I want to talk a little bit about this morning is how important is it that we are spending time in the word, in the Bible, in scripture? So the answer to these two questions are deeply intertwined with each other. I'm going to try to take them on one at a time. So if you've been at CCF for any amount of time, uh, and if you looked at our website, and Matt often refers to this, we have what we call our vision circle. And it was a, we had an elder retreat years ago, and we thought we would really like a simple way to capture the why, the how, and the what about being a follower of Christ. And if you haven't seen that, I'd encourage you to go on the website and take a look at it. But we like the simplicity of it. And the center of it is our why, right? Why do we exist? Well, it's to glorify God. That's why we're here. That's why he created us. And then outside of that is, well, how do we go about that? That glorifying God? Well, we do two things. We love Jesus and we love others and we obey Jesus's commands. We love and obey. So we glorify God by loving and obeying. And then what are the things that we do uh, uh, as followers of Christ? Well, we witness, we pray, we fellowship, and we spend time in the word and we pray, right? So those are the, I think I got all five there. <laughs> I wasn't looking at my notes, but we're going to talk about the fifth one there, which is the importance of the word. So again, we're going to talk about what is the purpose of the Bible. So I, I, I think I've done this once before. I'd like each of you to take out a notepad or piece of paper. There's pens in front of you. Don't do this in your head. Yeah, Marcus, whatever. Okay. Take, take something out. Please do this. And, and I want you, I'm going to ask you to write down the answer to this question, because then what I want to do later is I want to reflect on what you wrote down. Okay. And so the question that I'm putting in front of you is what is the purpose of the Bible? So I'm going to give you 30 seconds because I'm sure you're all fresh and ready and you have a quick answer, but write it down in a clear and concise fashion. What is the purpose of the Bible? So when I was in school, we used number two pencils, right? And the teacher would say, put your pencil down when you're done and look up. So uh, hopefully I didn't interrupt your flow there, but we're going to come back to that, right? After we, we talk a little bit about scripture here. So from a technical standpoint, I'm an engineer. I like numbers. The Bible, 66 books. It was, you know, the books were written by 40 plus people. And um, it was written over about 1500 years. So certainly that's just a technical description of what the Bible is. But unfortunately, that technical description does not tell us the purpose of the Bible. So I grabbed three resources off my shelf that I respect. And I said, well, let's let's start here. 
Uh, Gary introduced me to uh, a book called To Be a Christian. It's, a, it's an Anglican catechism, and I really like it because it lists 368 questions about being a Christian, and then it answers them. And I love it. It's got a foreword by J.I. Packer in it. It's a wonderful resource. And I looked that up. And if you work your way down through question number 25, in, in that they say, well, what is Holy Scripture? Ha, I'll find my answer here. And what it said in that Anglican catechism is Holy Scripture is God's word written. Okay, God's word written, given by the Holy Spirit through prophets and apostles as the revelation of God and his acts in human history and is therefore the church's final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Sounds pretty good. A lot there. Second, I pulled a, a book off of my shelf uh, by Ray Stedman. He's got a neat book called Adventuring Through the Bible. And he asks, asks and answers the question about God's purpose regarding the Bible. So if you have your Bible, digital, analog, old school, new school, whatever it is, open it up and let's go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. If you don't have cheater tabs, <laughs> look at what your neighbor's doing. Okay, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And this is a scripture that, that Ray Stedman pointed to when he tried to answer the question about what is the purpose of the Bible? Right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans, 1, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Okay. So 11 through 13, so I'm going to read you verses 11 through 13. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the, to the whole measure of the fullness of God. This is NIV version there. And the key is what Ray pointed out from the end of that uh, passage in verse 13, becoming mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of God. And this is the way that Ray answered his own question about the purpose of the Bible. That is God's purpose to bring us to maturity God wants us to become mature by becoming like Christ. All that God has done in human history, all of his works recorded in scripture and the entire universe in its physical and its moral dimensions have occurred so that you and I might become mature in Jesus Christ. So that's Ray Stedman's answer to the question about the purpose of scripture is it helps bring us to become mature in Jesus Christ. A third example, uh, many of you have probably heard of Max Licato. And I, I like Max's because it's simple, <laughs> it's short and it's clear. Max said the purpose of the Bible is simply to proclaim God's plan to save his children. So as Max put it, it's to proclaim God's plan. So all three of these answers to me are clear, 
and they're accurate and they're all trying to get to fundamental truths. Um, but they are different, right? So I spent a lot of time thinking about this week. I chatted with a variety of different people, spent time in the word. And this is my answer to what is the purpose of the Bible. And I would encourage you each to come up with your own answer to this question. But this is mine. It's got three parts. <laughs> the first is that the Bible is God's autobiography. Uh, in this autobiography, he tells us who he is and he shows us who he is through, through Jesus Christ. So number one, it's his autobiography. Number two, second, the Bible is God's plan, his plan for everything and everyone for all time. This includes this world and his internal kingdom. So it's his autobiography and it's his plan. And then third, the Bible tells our story. It tells us about our condition and our role in his plan. It tells us who we are and how we fit into his plan for his kingdom. So that's my version. Autobiography, plan, our role. Now, remember, the answer to this question can only and must only come from the word itself. And we're going to talk more about that. This is because the Bible is the only pure truth that we have at our disposal to answer these kinds of questions. Later, I'm going to talk a little bit about the place and importance of uh, extra biblical resources that we have at our disposal as well. So before I close out this discussion about this first question, what is the purpose of the Bible? Um, I thought it would be good to go to the word and see what the word says about itself. So I'm going to go into Psalm. We're going to go to Psalm 19, seven. Big book in the middle. Psalm 19, seven, and we're going to stay in Psalm here for a little while. Psalm. So Psalm 19, seven says the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. So what I see that Psalm saying is, is that the word is perfect and it is trustworthy. Number one. Let's go a little bit to the left. Psalm 1830. As for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. So what I saw in that Psalm is flawless. Let's go to the right of ways. We're going to go to Psalm 111, 7, Psalm one eleven seven. Psalm one eleven seven says, The works of his hands are faithful and just, all his precepts are trustworthy. Right? So again, trustworthy is what the Lord the Word is, the Bible is, Holy Scripture is. And I'm going to do one more. Let's go to the New Testament. Let's go to the book of Romans. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. 7, 9. Romans 7, 9. This is Paul. And in Romans 7, 9, Paul says, So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. So what I saw in there is that the law and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So perfect, trustworthy, flawless, holy, righteous, and good. That's what the word says about itself. Okay. So we've, we've talked a little bit about the purpose of the Bible. I want to take on a second question. And the second question is, how important is it that, that we as Christians, as little Christ, as followers of Christ are in the word. So I don't remember the exact context, but Matt was preaching a sermon years ago and he gave an analogy and it just stuck with me. He said something, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you can put on a Jersey and claim to be a Seattle Seahawk, right? But if you don't show up for practice, you don't know the playbook, you don't know the coaching staff, and you don't show up for games, well, you are not a Seahawk. So I love putting my number 12 jersey on and going and getting 10% off a of Safeway on a Sunday day for shopping, but the reality is that doesn't make me a Seahawk, okay? And simply claiming to be something or someone does not make it so. We don't have to search far to see prominent examples of this today in our society where people are claiming to be something or someone that they are not. So the question is, if we claim to be Christians, how do we fit the word into our priorities, our habits, and this new identity that we have? So it's helpful to review some examples from scripture about how important knowing the word is. So the first example I'll pull from Matthew, we're deep in our study of Matthew right now. And it wasn't too long ago that we studied the temptation of Christ in Matthew chapter four and verses one through 11 recount Jesus's temptation and interact in action with Satan and the battle that they had. It was a battle. And astoundingly, both Jesus and Satan quoted scripture in their exchange. Hard to imagine Satan quoting scripture to try to convince Jesus to do what he wanted him to do. Scripture was important enough that it was their offensive and defensive weapons of choice. As a second example, consider Jesus's answer to the teachers of the law. So let's go to Mark 12, Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 31, Mark 12, 28 through 31. And man, Jesus was constantly, uh, people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were always trying to trap Jesus by asking him what they thought were trick questions. Well, Jesus had a little mastery of the word. 
So Mark 12, 28 through 31 says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, so of all the commandments, which is the most important? Jesus answered, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, to love thy neighbor as thyself, where there is no commandment greater than these. Well, where did these answers come from? Well, the first part of Jesus' response quotes directly from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. So Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 is known as the Shema, S-H-E-M-A. And it's recited daily by devout Jews as a confession. And Jesus picked the first part of his answer to their question from that in Deuteronomy. And the second part of Jesus's response about loving your neighbor quotes directly from Leviticus 19, 18. So again, you can see Jesus is using the word, his word, to combat those that don't have the kingdom's best interest in mind. Now, as for the writers of the New Testament, they quote the Old Testament about 320 times. And the, they reference the Old Testament at least a thousand times. It's really pretty staggering. And in fact, Matthew quotes the Old Testament 47 times when he's making his case that Jesus is the Messiah, right? He had knowledge of and mastery of the word and was able to use it to teach and make his case about who Christ was. So if another example is Paul in Thessalonica. So if you want to join me in Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts chapter 17, Acts 17. Verses one through four. So Acts 17 verses one through four. So this is Paul and others in Thessalonica. And it says, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis, boy, say that three times fast, Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you as the Messiah, he said, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So notice that Paul reasoned with the scriptures and he did that to explain and prove who Jesus was. That, those were, that was the tools that he used. He used scripture to proclaim truth to his audience. Now, shortly after this, due to some bad characters in Thessalonica, Paul and Silas had to escape to nearby Berea. So in verses 10 through 12, we're still in Acts. This is what it says. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character 
than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So notice that the Bereans were of more noble character, and part of that was they examined the scriptures every day for what purpose? To determine the truth. So when we talk about doing our Berean work, sometimes we use that phrase. It's about that we are taking, we are talking about regular and diligent examination of the scriptures to determine truth. So these examples show that Jesus, the apostles, early believer, and the early believers knew scripture and they used it to fend off Satan, answer questions from doubters or troublemakers. They used it to reason, explain, and prove, and they used it to make disciples and verify the truth. So it was interesting. We have a a life group in our home and uh, very blessed with the folks that are in that group. And a few months ago, we were discussing the book of Matthew in a life group, and we were discussing the fact that Matthew leans on substantial Old Testament knowledge to make the case that Christ is the Messiah. And I asked the group one simple question, how important is it to spend time in the word? We had a good discussion, but one member of our group gave a simple and clear and memorable answer. They said it is a 10 out of 10 priority. I really like that answer. And then last week, uh, Fred Sweet, a fellow elder here, shared out a Ray Steadman devotional with Matt and me. It really spoke to him. And uh, the devotional emphasized the importance of strong and sound biblical teaching. In the devotion, Ray made the following statement. He said, it is the truth that changes people. If the scriptures are not being taught, then people are not being changed. So he linked the scriptures to our fundamental change that happens when we believe in Jesus Christ. So I believe Ray's statement is true that without understanding of the truth from scripture, people cannot change, cannot be changed. So I'm going to make a bold statement here. It's bold because I believe it to be absolute and true. And that statement is that if we love and obey Jesus Christ, then we spend time in the word. It's what we do. We do this because he tells us, right? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. In John and in 1 John, love, obey, love, obey, love, obey. So, What does God say about the importance of knowing the word? Well, let's go to Deuteronomy and let's go take a look at the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 6, 4 through 9. I'm not sure who's faster, the analog paper turners or the digital screen swipers. There you go, Fred, you're on it. Okay, so Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. So I'm going to read this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. 
These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So notice what was said in verse six. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. And it goes on to speak of impressing them, talking about them, tie them, write them. So I think when we look at that, it's clear that it's important to God that we study the word, know the word and remember it. We are forgetting machines, right? We are terrible at remembering important things. Look at the history of the nation of Israel, Assyrian exile, Babylonian exile, build a temple, gets burned down, build another one. The Romans tear it down. It's just, it's a mess because they forgot about their relationship with the Lord. So what are the, some, some of the most important practical reasons to study and know God's word? So I thought about this and I, I'm going to share three with you. Um, we already discussed God's purpose in creating scripture for us. As Ray Stedman said, it is, it is for us to mature in Christ. And as Max said, it's to proclaim God's plan. And as I shared my own version, it's to know God, know his plan and know what our role is in his plan. So in addition to knowing these things, there are some very important scenarios highlighting the importance for us to know scripture. So the first one, if you want, please turn to Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to read through the Great Commission. This is the very end of the book of Matthew, chapter 28. These are Jesus's last instructions before he left. So verses 16 through 20, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always till the very end of the age. It's called the Great Commission. So what is required to execute on the Great Commission? Well, if you look back, we got to know about Jesus's authority. What is baptism and how to do it? This Trinity, it lists, right? This strange thing in here, teaching, obedience, commands. How do we know what the great commission is and how to do it. You have to be in the word to know what those things mean and why they're important to God and our role in doing them. So only way we know is by reading the word. So this, that the first example is making disciples, right? Now the second example of why it's important to be in the word is preparation. So let's flip over to first Peter three fifteen. 
1 Peter 3.15. The latter quarter of the New Testament. 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation. So 1st Peter 3.15. Okay. And Peter says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So you see what Peter says there? Always be prepared. Well, prepared for what? Well, to answer anyone who asks us where our hope comes from. Being prepared is not wing it. It is not last minute. It is not in retrospect. It is planning for it, preparing for it, and being ready. Third, in addition to making disciples and being prepared, there's the issue of false teaching. I think it's particularly pertinent in our society today. So I'm going to read through four. I'll list them off, but I'm going to go through them fast here about false teaching. So I'm going to read from Acts, and you can write these down and look them up later. Acts 20, 29 through 31. Acts 20, 29 through 31. It says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears, right? So that's just a heads up about what Satan wants to do to and inside the church. And Peter builds on this in 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. Peter says here, But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into dispute, disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. So Peter's given us a heads up about what we're going to run into. And then the book of Jude, verses 3 through 4. There's only one chapter in Jude, verses 3 through 4. And it says, But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce, you know what I did? I repasted my second Peter in my Jude. Peter, well, that's pretty funny. <laughs> Thank you, Doug. Humility is good, is it not? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the source here because my cut and paste was faulty. So Jude, verses 3 through 4. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men 
who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Okay, so that's Jude's warning. And then the fourth is in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 7. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 7. And here's what Paul says to Timothy. The spirit clearly says that in the later times, some will abandon the faith and will follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. And then in verse six, it says, if you point these things out to the brothers and the sisters, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. So you have that warning from Paul, and then you have encouragement and focus for Timothy. You notice in verse 6, it says, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, right? So recognizing and identifying and warning others about false teaching means you are a good minister of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul told Timothy here. And in verse seven, Timothy is encouraged to train yourself. This isn't just for those teaching. We should all be ready to point out and refute false teaching by training ourselves. And where does the training come from? Right there. Okay. And then going on to, uh, we're going to go to 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, and we're almost done here. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, Paul gives some, some of the most important advice that he can regarding the combat of false teaching. So 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, Paul says, In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in the view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine and said to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of the ministry. So we told Timothy, keep your head. So how do we keep our head? Well, by knowing the truth of scripture and combating false teaching with this. False teaching will happen. We should know scripture inside and out so we can identify false teaching, fend it off and protect and strengthen each other in the process. So we had the three examples there, right? We had, um, go back here so I get them all right. 
Number one, executing on the Great Commission requires we understand the word. Being prepared to explain the source of our hope requires being in the word. And identifying and combating false teaching requires that we're in the word. So I did want to say a little bit about extra biblical uh, materials. Um, you know, I'm super grateful for the books that are on my shelf and other things. I'm, I'm talking about um, textbooks, commentaries, devotionals, fiction, studies, movies, documentaries, and the like, right? And I actually pulled right from some Ray Steadman in here and Max Licato and so on. There's a strong place for these extra biblical things. However, there is danger in spending an inordinate amount of time on these types of resources if it comes at the expense of being in the word. So I guess what I would, and, I'm, I'm, and as Matt said, I'm speaking to myself here. We're all in this together. How much time am I spending here? And how much time in an absolute sense and in a relative sense, how much time am I reading other things who ultimately all have to pull their truth from here, right? It's between you and God. You got to assess that time in the word and relative time with other commentaries and so on. So I like how two people, I, one, I, I like how John MacArthur put it. He said, how else can anyone know the message of the Bible apart from the words in the Bible? Makes sense to me. And Ray Steadman in the book that I quoted from earlier, he said, this book is not a substitute for Bible study. In fact, I would rather that you take this book and throw it on a bonfire than use it as a substitute for actually reading and studying God's word. This book is intended to be opened alongside of not in place of scripture. So I know you're, you're slogging through numbers, right? <laughs> or you're grappling with something in here, but God put every word in here for a purpose. And uh, that's between you and the Lord, but let's not forsake this for things that might be easier or more convenient or uh, more enjoyable. Well, I should say more enjoyable. This should always be a joy, even when it's hard. Okay. So to summarize my answer to the second question, how important is it to spend time in the word? Well, it's a 10 out of 10. It's non-negotiable. It's what Christians do. The word prepares us for the great commission, sharing the reason for our hope and dealing with false teaching. So I'd encourage you as, as uh, Carol said, Matt's putting on a brief class this Saturday. I know it's summer. We've got projects and chores and all that. And I understand you might have commitments, but gosh, if you can fit it in, what a great opportunity to learn how to study the word with brothers and sisters. Okay. That's what I have for you. Let's close out with prayer. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we can go to it and we can seek and find truth and answers and hope and purpose and direction. And Lord, I pray that our church continues to be characterized by our fellowship, by prayer, by our witness, by time in the word, by loving each other, and that we are loving you, loving each other, 
and obeying the commands that you've given us in this word. I pray, Lord, that for those that aren't here, we continue to lift up uh, Christine and the family as with their loss of Rhea. And we love and miss Gil. And we pray for Angie and others as they come to grip with the, the loss here on earth, but also the reality that we will be together forever. In your name, amen. Thank you.